Well, you can open in your Bible there to Proverbs chapter 3. We're trying to take a chapter a week, which means this morning we have 35 verses to try to get through. In C.S. Lewis's novel, The Great Divorce, Lewis, uh, imagine, a, imagine a scenario where these people from what he calls Greytown get on a bus and they go to these glorious mountains. Now, Greytown is essentially hell. Not essentially, it is. And heaven and the great mountains is heaven. And so in this imagined scenario, these, these visitors from Greytown, these visitors from hell, are offered the chance to actually stay there. But the vast majority of the tourists, they prefer hell to heaven. They shriek and they run back to the bus from which they came because they realize that to dwell in heaven, they must give up their self-dependence. They must give up their self-righteousness. They must even give up the anger and bitterness that they're clinging to. Even their lusts must go. In fact, one of the tourists from Hell carries around a lizard on his shoulder named, called the Lizard of Lust. And one of the angels actually volunteers. He said, I'll kill that angel for you. And this was the, the, the tourist's reply when the angel says, let me kill that lust. He says, get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. You'd kill me if you did. Now, this book should not be used to develop a theology of, of heaven and hell. That's not going to be helpful for us. We don't believe in, in that second trip on a tourist bus. From That's not helpful. But this idea that a person would so identify themselves with their sin or so identify themselves with their lust that, that they would assume, if you kill that, you kill me. Now, we can, we can learn from that. That is a brilliant picture of what keeps us from submitting to God's wisdom because we believe the lie, the lie that Jeff mentioned this morning in his prayer, the lie that comes straight from the Garden of Eden that God is holding out on me. He, he's keeping back his best from me. When he calls me to turn from sin, he's trying to keep me from real joy and real freedom and real security and real peace. And here's the truth, that in Christ, that in Christ we can find real joy in living life unto the glory of God. In Christ we can know real joy by living life for the glory of God. Now I think chapter th Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13 sort of captures the, the thrust of our whole chapter. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. So I actually want to start in the middle of our text... Uh, this morning. I know that's sort of unusual, but our text, I think, is structured around this middle section that highlights the wonderful reward of walking in wisdom. And so then the beginning and the end of the books are, 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 of the chapter are sort of bookends highlighting, now, here's how you walk in wisdom towards God. Here's how you walk in wisdom towards man. So our first point this morning actually comes from that, that middle chunk of scripture there, chapter 3, verses 13 through 20. I'm going to read it in chunks here as we go to each point. Um, so look there in verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. 
Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. So that word blessed, right? Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. It means something, you know, sometimes maybe even your Bible translates that word happy. Happy, oh, the happiness of the one who finds wisdom. Now that can be an appropriate translation. It can be helpful in some ways. The only, the only problem is probably the way that we tend to think about happiness in our culture and in our world. We tend to think really surface level thing. I, I'm happy when things are good. I'm happy when life is going smooth. I, I, I'm happy when things are going my way. Now, that's why some translations say, well, we, maybe we should avoid that word happy. But it does carry that connotation. It, it, it goes well beyond this sort of shallow view of happiness. And, and we might say it this way, the one who finds wisdom is blessed in that he experiences the rich rewards of living life. We've been saying God's way in God's world for God's glory. The one who finds wisdom is blessed in that he experiences the rich rewards of living life God's way in God's world for God's glory. So it's this this deep-seated joy that comes from walking the righteous path, walking the path of wisdom. And therefore, it's not tied to our just to our circumstances, right? If if my joy and my happiness is tied to how my life is going, then it's going to look up and down. Instead, the the blessed person is the one who knows the the, the deep-seated joy and reward of walking God's way and God's world for God's glory. In other words, don't don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie. It's tempting for us to believe that if we could just cast off any restraint, any command from God, if we could just truly be ourselves, right? if we could fulfill our heart's deepest desires, then I could be truly happy. And the Proverbs confronts that head on. It says, no, true blessedness, true deep-rooted joy is found in living life unto the glory of God. And so what Proverbs does is sort of holds up for us this, this model of a life worth living, a life that leads to stability and peace, a life that leads to righteousness, and real joy. And so that's what Proverbs chapter 3 is doing. It's sort of holding up for us these, these blessed benefits of walking in wisdom. And why is that so? Like, why, why is wisdom to be so desired? Well, well, in verse 14 and 15, it says, because it's better than money. It's better than gold or silver Right? The, the blessed person, you're blessed if you find wisdom because wisdom is more valuable than gold and silver. Right? We've already seen this in Proverbs. We're in Proverbs chapter 3, three times the, the, the glory of wisdom has been highlighted. The wisdom is to be desired, is to be sought after, is to be treasured, is to be delighted in more than gold, silver, or precious jewels. Right? We, we may need this reminder more than we want to admit. 
right? There, there's, there's a reason we get three chapters three times, pursue wisdom. Pursue wisdom, value wisdom, treasure it above riches. So we need this. We need this reminder of the value of wisdom. We are, in, in fact, studying Proverbs 1 through 9 over the summer because we need this sort of, not just surface level sort of conformity to, to some outward moral standard. No, we're studying Proverbs because we need true wisdom, this sort of deep-seated, heart-level, deeply-rooted change that God produces in us. We need more than rules. We need more than just talking points. We need more than just knowledge. We need to see God's glory and the richness of His wisdom and desire it with the sort of intensity that Solomon talks about here. Desire it more than you desire winning the lottery. So wisdom is a blessing because it's, it's more, it's superior to riches. It also leads, we said earlier, to a life worth living. That's there in verse 16. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. So wisdom, again, in, in chapter 3, is, is personified as, as a person, right? We said that wisdom is, is not just an attribute of God, that, that, that God is wisdom. Anything that can be called wisdom comes down from Him. He alone is wise. But in the book of Proverbs, since it's kind of poetic, it personifies wisdom as this lady who's going on the streets, calling out, if you're simple, turn into me. And so we get that again here in verse 16. Wisdom is pictured as this woman, and she comes bearing gifts. Right? It says, in her right hand is long life, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Right? One commentator said this, Wisdom is the insight into life and the way the world works so that people avoid the pitfalls that might lead to an early death or damaged reputation. Right? So, so there's, there's a reward in pursuing wisdom. Now we would say this, life is complicated, right? And God's plan for each person is unique. And what we have in Proverbs as a genre are these, these statements about life that, that are rules about life. But it doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions to the rule. We would just say that the exception actually proves the rule. It doesn't disprove the rule. And so what Solomon does in Proverbs chapter 3 and really all, all throughout Proverbs is just say, you know what, I'll let Job deal with like unjust suffering and, and I'll deal with it in Ecclesiastes later, like when life doesn't go our way. What he's saying is though, uh, uh, generally when you walk in wisdom, you avoid the pitfalls that might lead to an early death. Here's what we can say. We all suffer. We will all suffer. The wise Christian will suffer, right? You can't avoid all suffering, but foolish people compound their suffering, right? Sin makes life more difficult. Sin makes life harder. It complicates life. If I tell a lie to this person and I tell a lie to this person, now I've got to figure out who have I lied to? Have I told anybody the truth? Can I be real with anybody? All of a sudden, my life has got really, really difficult, Remember the warning in Proverbs chapter 1. If, you run, if you're quick to run to do violence, you're setting your own trap. You're going to fall into your own trap of violence. Instead, walk in wisdom. Avoid the trap. How many have, de, um, 
How many have been denied? Long life because they insist on walking in sin. How many ruin their reputation, right? That's honor. That is good reputation for those who walk in wisdom. How many have ruined that through continual sin, through wickedness, through lack of trustworthiness? If they had turned to the Lord and walked in humble faith, admitted their own folly, and walked in righteousness, they could have avoided some of those pitfalls. And this is just simply the way God designed the world. That's what he says there in verses 19 and 20. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. This is the way God has made the world. Proverbs 3 is essentially an education in how the world and life work, and the instructor is the creator himself. You know, all, almost all of chapter 8 is dedicated to this theme, that God has so woven wisdom into creation that to walk against Him is to swim upstream. Again, it's to make life harder. It's to make life more difficult. It's to go against the very thing you and I were designed to do, and it's to go against the very way that God has made this world. In other words, we, we might say it this way. God doesn't have to work real hard to frustrate the plans of the wicked because they're walking against wisdom. They're walking in foolishness. And the end result is sort of woven into creation. Simply stated, God has designed you and your life in such a way that submission to Him may may lead to peace and joy. And failure to submit to Him results in anguish, frustration, and hopelessness. And so what Proverbs 3 does is it helps us to see the foolishness of refusing to hear from the Lord. And so what what, what happened in in Proverbs chapter 2, it sort of did the same thing by saying, wisdom will protect you from, from the wrong path. Right? And what Proverbs chapter 3 then does is it's not the negative, here's what to avoid. It's here's, here's the reward of wisdom. Here's the benefit of wisdom. You know, so, you know, I was thinking about it this week. We might illustrate it this way. Sin is like sparkling water, right? Those little flavored things. Some of you enjoy that. You need to repent, all right? <laughs> is there anything that looks so good and lets you down so hard? You know, it's got the lime, and you're like, man. And then you taste it, and you're like, what? It's bitter. So Proverbs chapter 2, avoid the sparkling water. Proverbs chapter 3 is like holding out a Dr. Pepper to you and saying, come, drink. That's what 3 is. It's holding up the goodness of wisdom, the reward of wisdom, the blessing of wisdom. And so we might say this, don't waste your life. If you, if you pursue folly, you are wasting your life. Don't spend your life chasing that which the world says will satisfy. Don't go on ignoring God's word, his call to turn to Christ and trust in him for salvation, to walk in submission to him, to, to walk against the very purpose for which you were made and to walk against the design of the creator is to waste your life. And the byproduct of, of walking and living unto the glory of God is this, this idea of joy and likely a, a life worth living. See, the goal, is, the goal then, though, is to, to serve the Lord faithfully 
and love others well. The goal is actually not joy. If you aim at happiness, you miss it. If you aim at wisdom, if you aim at living life for the glory of God, you get, you get joy thrown in. All right, so that's why this chapter is bookended by acknowledge God, trust God, fear God, and love your neighbor. Right, so, so here's the goal. To be faithful, not to pursue the, act, the reward itself, but to pursue God and trust Him with, with the results. And so let's go back to the beginning here. We see what it is to be wise toward God, to acknowledge Him. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12, and we'll talk through it. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will, be, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. So you see the you see the the even the odd verses there are commands, right? Do this, do this, do this. The the odd verses then become more of what we saw in verses thirteen through twenty: reward, result, type, language. There's only one little uh, change to that in verse in verse six. But the odd verses are commands. The even verses are reasons you should obey. The commands. And so the first command, I would say verses 1 to 4 sort of encapsulate this, this one thing. Obey from the heart. Obey from the heart. Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Now we've talked as we've walked through Proverbs chapter, chapters 1 and 2. I know some of you are just popping in for the, for the first time. But we've talked about the Father's role in the book of Proverbs as, as the mouthpiece of God. In fact, it's so much that, that the passage that Jeff read this morning, what does the author of Hebrews say? You were addressed as a son. right? You were called a son. So, so the, the Father is simply the mouthpiece of, of God here. And he's, so, so this, this father, Solomon, who's, who's writing, is not pouring out his own wisdom. We've seen that, right? The, the father's teaching and, and commandments are not the ones that come from relying on his own understanding, right? He's, he's simply putting forth God and his word to his son. So when he says, do not forget what I've taught you, he's saying, do not walk away from what you've learned. The commandments... Store them up, protect them in your heart. Right? To, in, in Scripture, most often, to remember means something more than just call something to mind. Right? The Lord remembered Noah. Okay? He didn't say, oh, I forgot about that guy down there floating around on a boat. Right? He, he chose to act for Noah. Right? So to not forget my teaching is more than just, hey, just be able to recite it. It's to walk consistent with it. Do not walk away from it. 
walk in it. But obedience, we, we, we've seen this too. It doesn't just come from willpower. It doesn't just come from sheer grit. But our actions flow from our heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Guard the heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. So the second part of verse 1 there sort of fills in the gap. Let your heart keep my commandments. That's why we're saying obey from the heart. Not just outward conformity. The reward for this then is stated in verse 2. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Now a couple things. One, keep in mind that, that Solomon is writing under the old covenant stipulations where there was reward for obedience, curses for disobedience, right? So an Israelite would, would resonate with this verse really easily. But I don't think it's actually quite that easy just to chalk verse 2 up to, well, that's not true for us because we're under a new and better covenant, right? We're under the new covenant. And here's, here's why I would say that. A couple things. First, Solomon doesn't seem to be rooting these sort of results of wisdom, rewards of wisdom in the covenant that God made with Israel. He seems to be rooting them in creation itself, right? So he appealed to creation in verses 19 and 20. And, and this is what we argued earlier, that, that wisdom is insight into God's will and, and life in this world. And so he, Solomon's really open to saying, generally speaking, the one who treasures God's commands, follows his will, navigates this world with skill that God gives, will have a long and a full life. Okay, again, this isn't prosperity gospel. This isn't like a one-to-one, a, a -one, if you obey God, you get this. No, this is a general statement about life. But there's probably a more convincing reason. I studied this. Probably a more convincing reason would be over in Ephesians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul actually holds out a similar incentive to children who obey and honor their parents. So Paul, obviously writing under the new and better covenant, the new covenant, there in chapter 6, verse 2, he says, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Well, what does Paul say? He lives after the cross. What does he say? That it may go well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So Paul is willing to sort of hold out this general rule, this general result. And it's really maybe not as complicated as I'm trying to make it. We can think back on our lives and say, well, who are the ones who just were rebellious, gave themselves over completely to the flesh? Well, what was their life like? And who were the ones that, that, that generally thrived, had a good reputation? Probably the ones that lived life unto the glory of God. So Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 seems to be talking the same way as the book of Proverbs talks. Now, again, this is not like obey in order to get this. You just want to please God. Your goal is to be faithful. Your life may be suffering and difficulty and hardship. Well, you're not aiming at long and full life. You're aiming at God's glory. Okay, these are observations about how life typically works. Generally speaking, walking in wisdom keeps you from shortening your own life, like giving yourself over to violence. So the father's 
teaching here then. Look in verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So the Father's teaching is not only wrapped up in knowing certain commands and trying to do the commands, but it's also a call to remember the steadfast love and faithfulness that's been shown to you by the Lord. To, to bind these things on your neck and to write them on your heart is to meditate on them and to live in light of, of them. Right? Israel took Deuteronomy 6 like literally, like, oh, I'm going to put something around me. Where Solomon gets to the heart of the command, treasure it up in your heart. Right? Do not forget the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. We're reminded over and over again that we want, to, we want to stray from what is true. We want to stray from thinking and contemplating the goodness and the faithfulness and the steadfast love of the Lord. And the typical result then in verse 4, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Now again, that's a general rule, right? Consider Christ in chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, we saw that Christ grew in wisdom, and what happened? It's, the text says he grew in, in stature before God and man. Like he experienced what Proverbs says here, but he also experienced unjust suffering and was put to death, though he was perfectly righteous. All right, so obey from the heart. Verse 5, trust in God. This is verses 5 through 8. Trust in God. He is fully trustworthy and faithful and when we see his character and we see it proven there for us living on this side of the cross, when we see it proven at the cross, when we see his word proved true in our own lives, we learn to fully rely on him and renounce trust in ourselves. So, so how do we trust in God? Well, with all your heart, we trust fully. This is an undivided commitment to bet your whole life on God's faithfulness, to throw your whole self at His trustworthiness, to stop holding back. It's to submit our thoughts, our wills, our desires, our motives, and our affections, and to bring them under the proper knowledge of who God is. He's trustworthy, and He's faithful, and He'll do what He promised. We trust in the Lord with all our heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. You might say we, we trust Him fully. We trust Him exclusively. We trust Him and Him alone. Not leaning on your own understanding. Or listen to the way He says it in verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Do not be wise in your, your own eyes. Do not lean on your own understanding. How, how countercultural is that today? Right? How radical a message is that? Because the general assumption, especially out here in sort of our Western context, is that you must rely on your own understanding. The only way to walk through life is to lean on your own understanding, trust yourself, go with your gut, follow your heart, you do you, you hear it every day. Why? Because we, as, as people, we have this tendency to so elevate man and to so minimize God. We assume, although Isaiah 55 says, God says, my ways are not your ways. 
My ways are higher than your ways. And we walk in this assumption that his ways are probably a lot like my ways. And in his understanding, it's got to be close to my understanding. We have it so backwards that we find it scary to trust the Lord. Right? We, we, find, we get fearful when we're called to trust the Lord and not to trust ourselves. And, and what Proverbs is saying, if you truly knew yourself and you truly knew God, you'd be scared to death to trust yourself and you would throw yourself fully at God. Oh, how we need this text. How we need Proverbs to, to crush this high view that we have of ourselves. This view of self and, and, and reminding us, don't rely on yourself. Don't rely on your own understanding. Trust in Him fully. Even when you find these commands that seem to rub up against this culture or they rub up against your desire for what you want to do, trust God. He is not, as we said earlier, forget the lie. He's not holding out on you. He is good and He is wise and He's faithful. And when you want something that He forbids, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. We trust Him. We trust Him fully, we trust Him exclusively, and then we trust Him extensively. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. In all your ways. Maybe, maybe you've tended to think about God as someone who might just come alongside you and kind of help in, in the big moments of life. What job will I work? Who will I marry? Where, where will I go to college? You know, those all sort of See if the Lord might help me. He might guide me. He might come alongside me. But the reality is this. 99% of your life is not those major decisions. Right? You will make maybe four big-time decisions in your entire life. Where you go to school, if you'll go to... Well, let's see. Where you'll work, who you'll marry, where you're going to live. I don't know what number four is. Right? What church are you going to join? All right. 99% of life is not made up of these big-time, life-altering decisions. And so verse 6 reminds us to acknowledge God in every aspect of your life. The reality is if we're not pleasing God in the mundane, the everyday, then we're simply not pleasing God. To acknowledge God in every area, that, that word acknowledge, it just means to know. To know Him in all your paths. It's to have Him as, as sort of what directs your thinking. Right? We ask this from time to time. What's the daily narrative of your life? Does God intrude your thoughts and determine the way that you live and think and talk? It's to be aware of Him and to fellowship with Him so that He pervades your thoughts and His Word guides you in every sphere of life. And I just, I just don't know how you do something like Chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, without being in the Word. I just don't think you can do it. Without that, we tend to drift, right? We're drifting towards self-reliance. We're drifting towards our own wisdom. We're drifting towards our own trust and self. Trust in Him. In verse 6, He says, It will make your paths straight. This is more than guidance. This is more than like God will tell you what to do. It's not that. It's that He will bring you to His appointed end for you. He protects you. He leads you. And so you can trust Him. So we obey from the heart. We trust the Lord. 
verses 9 and 10, we honor the Lord. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. So I think Solomon goes here because how we handle money becomes sort of a litmus test of sorts of whether or not we're trusting the Lord or acknowledging Him in all our ways or abandoning our own wisdom or fearing Him, right? How we handle our money sort of reveals our hearts. You know, because my own wisdom, leaning on my own wisdom, will sound something like, you know, when you get your giving statement, you know, at the beginning of next year, and you look at the money you gave, and you, you begin to think like, man, what could I have done with that? A year without giving sacrificially to the church, a year without serving others, man, I could do some things. I could upgrade the house. I could pull off that vacation I've been, right? That's, that's leaning on our own understanding. And again, we read the result there in verse 10. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now again, these are, do I have to say it again? <laughs> Generalizations about life. I like the way Derek Kidner said it. He said, if this was more than a generalization, if this is a one-to-one, like the prosperity gospels, those guys on TV that are wicked, they're taking advantage of people, they don't love people, they're trying to build their own empire, and they say, if you give me the biggest gift you can possibly give, you will be healed or you will be rich. One time in college, a friend played a prank on me, and he signed me up for like all these mailers from prosperity preachers. And they sent me, one of those prosperity guys sent me this rag, and it was in the shape of a hand. It said, hold this rag and tell God what you need and put it back in the envelope with the biggest gift you can afford and send it back to me, and God will give you that. Now, that guy's a charlatan, right? So Derek Kinder says this, if this was more than a generalization, then we wouldn't be honoring God with our money as much as investing in Him. Right, again, we're not aiming at full barns or full bank accounts. Right? That's totally up to the Lord. That is totally up to the Lord. You're, you're aiming at honoring Him. You're aiming at faithfulness. And whatever God decides to do, He's trustworthy. And you trust Him. Right? You're not investing in God. You know, there's like a mini Baptist prosperity. I know we're not Baptist, but there's like a mini prosperity gospel that floated around the churches I came from. It was like, we don't give in order to get but we do get when we give. You know, it's like, no, that's not it either. Right? We just want to honor God. We just want to honor Him. We give sacrificially. We trust God with the results. All right. Fourth, we receive discipline. Verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom He loves as a father, the son in whom He delights. So throughout the book of Proverbs, we'll see that it's actually the fool that hates correction. It's the fool that hates instruction. It's the fool that hates counsel. It's the wise that, that does so desire wisdom that they're okay if, if they receive counsel or instruction. And so how much more then should we, we be willing to receive the Lord's discipline? Right, the Lord's discipline. You know, I asked Jeff to read Hebrews 12 because the author of Hebrews actually quotes these two verses, and he reminds us that we are addressed as sons. We are addressed as sons, and God disciplines those whom He loves. One of the 
most glorious truths of the gospel is that we receive adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. I think knowing God says that's the greatest blessing of our salvation. It's to be brought into God's family. And if we are God's children, if you have, if you have looked to Christ and you've seen that he lived a perfectly obedient life in, in your place, he, he never sinned one time, and yet he went to the cross, and on that cross he paid the price for, for your sin and for mine. And, and so there's this exchange that happens if you would place your faith in him, turn to him, trust in him, rely fully on his work. There's any number of ways we might say that. But you're looking to Christ as the only possible means of paying the price for your sin. That, that this exchange happens where he took your sin and you get credited with the very righteousness of Jesus. And not only that, you are united to Christ in such a way that he, as the Son of God, Jesus Christ, if you are in him, you get treated as a, as a son. You become a child of God. And because God is a good father, he disciplines those whom he loves. Right? You may want to discipline someone else's children at the grocery store. But the reality is you, you discipline your own children because you love them. And the same is true here. In Christ, we have become children, children of God. And we can expect the loving instruction and correction of our Heavenly Father. Now, the problem is sometimes we think of discipline as nothing more than like a slap on the wrist, like you did this, so something bad. It's, I, don't, I don't think that's the way we're meant to understand the Lord's discipline. Certainly, that's, that's part of it. If you're heading down a, a path that's sinful, the Lord will discipline you. But I think it's, it's more than that, right? The error of Job's friends was to assume that everything bad that happened to Job was the result of his own sin. That's, that was their error, but the Father here in our text, and in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews encourages us not to view it that way, but to view it as the loving instruction and discipline of a Father, the Heavenly Father. So you can be encouraged this morning. There's no trial that will ever come upon you that escaped your Father's eye. There's no suffering that is accidental in your life. He is sovereign over it all. He prepares every moment for His children. Right? What did Jeff read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11? That doesn't make it fun. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's, it's this training. A couple things that can encourage us in the midst of trials. Number one is this. Since Christ himself bore the full weight of God's judgment and God's wrath, any punishment for sin. For those who are in Christ, any punishment for sin has been fully taken on by Christ. And what that means is there is no punishment left for his children. There's no wrath left to bear. We were not destined for wrath, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. There is no punishment for God's children, only discipline and course correction. His wrath was exhausted in Jesus Christ. So whatever suffering God's children go through, no matter how difficult, it cannot and will not ever be an expression of His anger, an expression of His wrath. It cannot be anything other than an expression of His love towards you 
as his child. That's comforting. Number two, I would say this. All hardship is discipline, but that does not mean all hardship is corrective discipline. Right? All hardship is discipline in the sense of training, instruction, but not all hardship is corrective. Oh, I must have sinned, so this is happening in my life. I think about it like, you know, I was coaching middle school boys last year, basketball. Sometimes I made them run because they weren't behaving, right? You don't listen, you're running. That's corrective, right? But sometimes we ran because we need to run in order to win games, right? And that's the way I think about this discipline of the Lord. Sometimes it is corrective. I've strayed, the Lord is bringing me back. Sometimes it's just God molding me, shaping me, transforming me into the image of Christ. Okay, so, so we started with these rewards of wisdom, results of wisdom. We went to what it means to acknowledge God, and now let's go towards the end of the text and talk about being wise toward others. And we'll try to hurry through this. We're running low. As Jeff would say, the, the clock is winning. My son, do not lose sight of these. Verse 21, keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow, I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor, who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason, when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence, and do not choose any of his ways. We'll read the rest of the text in a moment. But verse 21 is really a separate speech. It's a second speech in chapter 3 from the Father. And he begins, as he often does, appealing to wisdom, cherish wisdom, cherish discretion, right? Grow in this ability to see past kind of the, we said discretion is seeing past the immediate pleasures of sin, past that to see the the end of it, the consequences, and then to choose the God-honoring path. And he says this will lead to stability and confidence, why? Because you not self-confidence, confidence in God. You've entrusted yourself to Him. And He promises to keep your path. And, the, and so you have less fear, and so you sleep well, Solomon says. And, and we know that's true, right? Again, I keep trying to feel like i got to make this not... i, I got to make it sound a particular... But we know this is true. If you're living a double life, if you're shady in your business dealings, if you commit a crime... If you hurt others, if you assault a child, and you are in hiding, you have this fear that everything's going to come crashing down one day. And so Solomon says, don't walk that path because you don't want to live in terror. You don't want to lose sleep that you're going to be found out. Save yourself the trouble. The trouble. Live God's way in God's world for God's glory. All right, so then in verse 27, he turns to some prohibitions about how you know, essentially relating to how we should treat others. We, so we fear God, we honor Him vertically, and this plays itself out horizontally in the way that we treat others. So to acknowledge God in all your ways includes how you treat those around you. 
And the first thing he says is do not withhold good there in verses 27 and 28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. The wise, in other words, are attentive to the needs of their neighbor. I think Solomon intentionally sort of leaves that word good vague. You know, we might want to be like the Pharisee when, when he says, well, who is my neighbor? We might want to say, well, what is, what is the good there? I may not have it. Right? I think it's left vague to keep us from being able to sort of wiggle out of loving our neighbor. Right? What is the good? Well, it could be money. The law specified in several places, you know, that for, a, for an employer to not pay his employees was to rip them off and to be unjust. It could be a skill that you have. It could be like the parable of the Good Samaritan where there's just somebody who needs somebody to take care of. Them. Well, don't withhold that. The wise pay attention and find ways to bless their neighbor. Do not withhold good. Also, do not harm, verses 29 and 30. Do not harm. Not only are we to do good to our neighbor and to not withhold something that we can give to them if it is in our power to give it, but we should not seek their harm in any way. He goes on to say this, should, this includes abstaining from false accusations, from lying about your neighbors. And, you know, he says your neighbor, he lives trustingly next to you. We, the wise should be a stable, steady presence. Because our lives are directed not by wanting our own gain, but for the glory of God and self-sacrificial love towards others. And we should live honorable lives. The Bible teaches us even when our neighbors don't treat us well. Right? I'm reminded of Peter's admonition to, you know, to live honorably amongst the Gentiles so that, they, so that when they revalue as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this isn't like treat your neighbors the way they treat you. It's, it's love well even when you're being mistreated, even when you're being persecuted for your faith. Okay, verse 31, do not envy. Do not envy them. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. There seems to be a surface level attraction to those who, who seem to... You know, there are those who gain by walking the wicked path, right? And so it's tempting for us to look at that and say, man, I want what he has, so I guess I'll follow his path, right? There's a surface level temptation to want to go the wrong path. And the reality is we just, we, we just said those, those promises about the wise, they're generalizations. Usually wickedness leads to a hard life. Well, sometimes, like Asaph in Psalm 73, he's wrestling with, why am I suffering? And the wicked are prospering. And what Asaph discovers is that he needs to zoom out a little bit. He needs to zoom his perspective out. And if, he's, if he can see the end of the unrighteous, if he can see the end of the wicked, then he can understand that God is indeed being faithful to him. We actually see that at the, the, the end of the wicked in our text. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. Let's just end this way. Pay attention to the descriptors there in those last few verses. Virtuous, 
righteous, humble, and wise. Virtuous, righteous, humble, and wise. And I hope when you hear those four words, you don't say, got it, now what? Right, I hope, my hope ultimately is that you walk away from, from this text simultaneously encouraged to walk more faithfully, but also humbled by the impossibility of doing this well. Right, the impossible standard of, of walking this path all the time. And I hope that ultimately this text just drives us to the foot of the cross, where we are indeed humbled. And we say, Lord, that I have sinned, I am imperfect. And that there is only one Son who has actually obeyed the will of His Father. Right? He is the perfect Son. Christ is the one who perfectly obeyed all the counsel. He did it all. And it's only through Him then that we might be adopted, brought into God's family, enter into this Father-Son relationship. And it's only through Christ that we might be made righteous. And it's only actually in union with Him in whom all the riches of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Only through union with Christ might we have access to wisdom, and we might become wise, and we might actually obey from the heart and cherish wisdom because it comes from God Himself. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for this day. Lord, thank You for this text that confronts us. Forgive us. Forgive us for being self-righteous, for being self-reliant. May we... Trust in you. May we obey you from the heart. May we fear your name. In Jesus' name, amen.